0: Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades.
1: And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure.
0: Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast.
1: Welcome to episode four of the Love Capades podcast. In the last episode, Michelle was ripped from the arms of her Sicilian lover, Nicola. She returned home with absolutely no idea what her future would hold. So let's dive in and see what actually happened.
0: The next chapter is called The Boomerang Effect. Once leaving Nicola and after a short stay in Rome, I booked a flight to California per my lover's advice with a desire to find the same happiness at home. I wanted to see if I could somehow repeat the magic formula that had given me such freedom of being. But reality can be a bit at times. My six-month foreign adventure at an end, I needed to find work again. With two European escapades under my belt, I really wanted to find a job with international trappings. And bingo! With luck, I did just that. Right in my backyard was SRI International, a local think tank with a large department that operated worldwide. Our task was to organize and support conferences around the world, particularly in the emerging markets of the Pacific Basin. It was a pretty nifty gig, except for the Martinette boss, a woman who required unwavering allegiance from her underlings, something I wasn't wired to do. In spite of that problem, the job provided some very intriguing opportunities. One was a two-plus week stay in Sydney, Australia, which rekindled a long-held karmic connection to Australia. And another was the spectacular global conference we organized held in San Francisco. The Secretariat, as we were called, planned and sponsored a huge conference called the International Industrial Conference, IOC for short, which took place in San Francisco's Fairmont Hotel in 1969. More than 800 top executives from countries all over the globe, mostly chairmen and CEOs, congregated for two weeks. David Rockefeller and Johnny Agnelli of Fiat were the co-chair. It was a massive undertaking, but a very heady atmosphere in which to work. I remember how we toiled round the clock to prepare for that big shindig. In fact, all of the Secretariat girls watched America's first moon landing in July of 1969 together while slaving away on conference details. Two love connections, which I remember fondly, popped up at the conference. The assistant to a top executive from Milano took a shine to me. I must have a lot of Italian pheromones. Anyway, his name was Sergio Pines. The pronunciation of his last name in Italian is penis. Seriously. (laughs) Needless to say, this was a source... of much tittering amongst my female associates. The piece de resistance occurred one evening when a beautiful bouquet of anthurium arrived at my room from Signor Pines. For those of you who aren't familiar with this plant, they have large, glossy red petals with a long stamen that sticks out like, yes, you guessed it, a penis. I remember flopping backwards on my bed in hysterics, but also feeling a bit sad for my admirer, as he had no idea what he'd done. Sergio was one of those fellows who appeared on my radar screen in a momentary blip and then disappeared. In spite of his invitation to visit him in Italy, and I have the card in which he wrote that invitation, which I'll post on our website, I just wasn't into him. Blip or no blip, I couldn't resist telling you the penis story. There was a second suitor who fell for my charms during the symposium. He was a famous simultaneous interpreter from Japan, there to help with the translation duties. In fact, he'd been the voice of Japan during the moon landing in July. His initials were the same as mine, M.M., And he was very confident, both in his professional abilities and his manliness, even though he was about five foot two inches tall. I found him engaging, but was not attracted to him physically, something that disappointed him greatly. In this case, however, I chose to keep him as a friend. We kept in touch over many years via Christmas cards, and more than two decades later I reconnected with him while on a tennis exchange in Tokyo. He was even more determined to have his way with me then, on his turf, so the relationship ended with a big fud, precisely because I refused to sleep with him. Maybe the Sally met Harry rule is true. Men and women can't just be friends, especially if they've already been lovers. Actually, I believe that is pretty much poppycock. Through the years, I've had many male friends, and they haven't all wanted to get in my pants. At least I don't think so. In addition to the dalliances I'd enjoyed at this glitzy conference, I stumbled into one of my more gnarly love affairs upon returning to the office. While working at my desk one day, a rakishly handsome man appeared in the doorway. He had a full crop of lightly salted hair and a swoonable smile with pearly whites to make a dentist jealous. He'd heard about me after returning from one of his overseas assignments in Australia, and he'd come to check me out. I'm not sure what he'd heard about me beyond that I was the new chick on the block, but that was enough to pique his curiosity. Jack proved to be one of those womanizer types with heaps of charisma. It didn't take long for me to fall for his allure and then to fall into his bed. He'd been married and had two children, but was divorced by that time. He did, however, have a number of women under his sway, one in each port of call he'd inhabited. I was to become his squeeze in Menlo Park. And the story traveled over to Europe soon afterward. Before that, while out on a drive one day, he said to me, I suppose if we end up together, I'll have to give you a few children. Looking back, this was the hook of a practiced philanderer. But I wasn't savvy enough in the love department yet to know what he was doing. Live and learn, as they say. During this time period, I decided to pursue a graduate degree in international relations, so I applied and was accepted to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in Boston. Nevertheless, fate grabbed me again, so rather than heading to Boston, I was destined for a third extended stay in my beloved Italy. Let's face it, after two enthralling sojourns, I'd become addicted to La Dolce Vita. Fletcher would have to wait. My roommate at the time, Gail, agreed to join me for this return trip to Italy. More drama and love capades ensued. As with my second Italian respite, Gail and I started out with a visit to the Swiss cousins in Fribourg. This time, a very startling event took place, which delayed our plans. We were both staying with the Daguet family in their third-floor apartment. They didn't have room for both of us, so I volunteered to sleep on the 11th floor in one of the little maid cells. I arrived there late one night and remember writing a letter to Jack, my SRI lover. By that time, he was in Finland on a project, and we would talked about how and where we'd rendezvous. About two or three in the morning, I smelled smoke in my little room. Opening the door, I was overwhelmed with a column of smoky air coming up the centralized elevator shaft. I immediately freaked out, and in an attempt to save myself, I exited the small window and somehow got up on the rooftop of the building. It was a mansard roof, so the top was flat. Adrenaline and sheer panic must have propelled me up there. Mind you, it was February, and I was wearing nothing but a flimsy nighty and a pair of flip-flops against the Swiss winter. Now what? I started yelling in my high school French to the few passers by on the street below. It was the middle of the night, after all, to alert someone of the fire in the building. Freezing and frightened, I prayed for some form of rescue. Eventually, a few fire trucks arrived on the scene, but no one was paying any attention to me up on the roof. In America, I thought, the firemen would be making Herculean efforts to rescue me at the same time they were putting out the fire. But rien, or nothing, as they say in French, not a fireman's finger was being lifted on the damsel's behalf nor were there any fire escapes on the building which I could shimmy down. I remained stranded up there, frozen as a glacier, and terrified for more than two hours. All along, I really wondered if I would die on that roof. The firemen never did a thing to save me. I found this to be incredible, truly incredible. Once they'd put out the furnace fire in the basement, my salvation arrived in the form of a woman on the 10th floor who emerged onto her balcony. Speaking to me in French, she tried to coax me off the roof, telling me I had to jump onto her balcony. There was no balcony on the 11th floor where I'd been. I hesitated a good while figuring out if this maneuver would be worse than staying on the roof. Finally, I dangled down from the mansard roofline, poised over the concrete landing spot, holding on literally for dear life. The well intentioned savior then brought out a flimsy wooden chair for me to jump onto. Merdalor! I screamed at her to move the chair, and finally I let go and cascaded through the air. To this day, I can still see this harrowing scene, not only playing back in my mind, but somewhere on a film screen. My crash landing was agonizing, but I was alive. I somehow got myself back to the Dagé flat, barely able to walk. Both father and son were doctors by then, so they realized immediately that I must have injured both of my feet from the fall. The next morning, I was taken to the hospital, where x-rays showed both of my heel bones were broken. What a disaster. Luckily, however, the Swiss doctors did a very innovative thing. If the firemen had been nincompoops, the Swiss doctors were heroes. Rather than hobbling me with two plaster casts, they fabricated two plastic lace-up contraptions with my heels cantilevered over the edge. This allowed me to not only walk, but take them off while sleeping or bathing. Out of desperation, I next decided to contact my blood relatives in Lausanne from my father's family. They had read in the newspaper about quote, a crazy American on a burning roof. Little did they know it was their cousin, Michelle. Once learning the truth, they instantly rallied and arranged for Gail and me to stay in a lovely old world hotel in the beautiful lakeside village of Montreux so I could recuperate. The hotel was owned by a family friend, the eccentric Giuseppe Studer. And let me just note here that I still have the article with the headlines from this Geneva newspaper, which I will post on the website. As it was off season, there were no other guests in the hotel. So Gail and I spent a lot of time during our stay hanging out with the one-of-a-kind bachelor resort owner. The middle-aged Mr. Studer was a frenetic soul, always in motion. But good-hearted as well. I'm sure we were the strangest guests he'd ever had—two pretty American girls, one with plastic lace-up gizmos on her legs. I'll never forget the magnificent spiral staircase that wound skyward to the upper floors. There was no elevator in this hotel, so picture me going up and down those many steps on my ample bottom. It would have been a whole lot easier to convalesce in a lounge chair in my backyard in Menlo Park. Most young women would have scuttled the entire endeavor and gone back to California post-haste. But as you might by this time predict, my adventurous self had taken over. One day during our stay, Giuseppe even invited us to accompany him up to see the Matterhorn. I remember fondly winding our way up to the small village of Zermatt on the famous red shuttle train. Once there, I remember walking on my funny feet with the aid of crutches all the way up to the base of the mountain, then stepping onto the snow-packed mountain itself. Standing there, upright, wearing my plastic casts, gave me the feeling that I would, in the end, triumph over this misfortune. Shortly after our visit to the mighty mountain, and after a total of three weeks recuperating in Montreux, Gail and I left the picturesque sanctuary and made our way down to Rome to set up camp as originally planned. It was an awkward time. I looked like an oddball duckling waddling around the Eternal City. People stared at me as if I were some sort of curiosity. One time, I recall Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., a former American senator and ambassador at large, gaped at me while walking along the Via Veneto. My temporary handicap did give me a window into what disabled people feel all the time. Gail and I ventured out to discotheques occasionally, and the Italian guys would try to get me to dance, thinking I had a permanent disability, but I just wasn't into it. The Swiss doctors had warned me that I'd never be able to play tennis again after such an injury, something I never believed, and which thankfully turned out not to be true. They instructed me that after two months, I would need to get updated x-rays and send them to Switzerland for review. So just before Easter, I went to an Italian hospital and got the films. I sent them northward, and the word came back that the heels had healed, and I could ditch the truques, as we called them, which is French for things. Finally, I took my first steps. My muscles were weak, of course, so I had to move like a turtle in slow motion. I remember going to the Vatican that Sunday to see the Pope at Easter and needing to step gingerly amongst the throngs in Piazza San Pietro. But I was grateful to be walking again and to leave the challenging world of the handicapped. By this time, Gail had found a boyfriend, an English bloke. They moved in together and later married, so I was left to find new accommodations. I ended up in an apartment building being used as a boarding house right off the Via Veneto in the high-rent district. It was owned by a former puttana, of all things, Italian for prostitute. She must have been one hot mama to accumulate the lira to afford such a building. The Signor rented rooms to foreign girls who had come to Italy looking for love. My roomie was an English woman named Martine who had arrived several years before and was still looking for a more The thing that was funny about our Putana landlady was that she forbade us to hang out the windows of our rooms because it screamed, you know what. That always made me laugh. Her other weird quirk was that she would never give messages to the girls when gentlemen called. This proved to be a near calamity. I don't believe these irritating idiosyncrasies were a case of her wanting to be protective of her signorina tenants. I'm pretty sure it had to do with her history as a prostitute, albeit a very successful one. Once she'd become a respectable property owner, she didn't want the world thinking she was running a bordello. To augment my limited budget and allow me to stay in Italy longer, I signed up with a temporary employment agency that paid 30,000 lira a week, which equaled $50 at that time. I was given one short-lived assignment and then a longer one. Both were memorable. My first temporary job was at Dino De Laurentiis Films, assigned to the managing director. Oh, my goodness. Thinking of myself as resourceful and capable, this just about did me in. My first task was to type a 20-page movie contract with eight carbon copies. This was during the days before Xerox copiers were available in every office. I could type like a banshee, but the Italian keyboard had a few anomalies. The A and the Z were reversed and the comma and period were transposed. This proved to be a total disaster. I had to stop and erase the innumerable mistakes caused by these keyboard differences on eight carbon copies. I thought I'd lose my mind. In addition to this boondoggle, the boss tried to give me dictation in Italian. I did my best, but Stanford educations didn't include learning dictation. In spite of the allure of this job, eventually pride and frustration sent me back to the agency for another assignment. Before the next posting, I flew to Brussels to meet the infamous Jack. You remember the SRI rogue I'd hooked up with back home. By that time, he was living in Helsinki. He'd kept in touch with me and proposed we meet in Belgium for a rendezvous. The weekend was romantic in the high-living Jack style. Fancy hotel, fancy restaurants, and a Jaguar rental car. On the surface, it all seemed glamorous, but his nefarious character was soon to be revealed. Back in Rome, I received a letter, not from him, but from his live-in lady friend, an Australian woman he was shacking up with in Helsinki. She told me in no uncertain terms to stay away from her man. I was totally stunned and felt utterly betrayed. In fact, I was incredulous. Trying to call the bastard for an explanation proved pointless. I was left to swallow a painful pill of chagrin. Learning to discern genuine interest from a good man versus that of a serial womanizer was not easy for me at that point. Unfortunately, I had to experience a few more missteps down the road before I figured it out.
1: Oh my God, Michelle, the, the roller coaster of love and hurt, and (laughs) happiness, and adventure certainly continues. Just amazing, these stories. Okay, you ready for me to ask you a couple questions? Yeah. So, you opened the segment with heading home from Italy, and you mentioned that you were hoping to find the same degree of happiness at home as you had in Italy. Can you speak a little bit more about that?
0: Well, this, this was a real big thing because I was just happy as a clam at high tide in Italy. I felt totally myself. I was not encumbered by stuff. And I was wondering if I could replicate that feeling. So I came home with the hope that yes, I could be as happy at home as I was in Italy. And frankly, it never really happened because life presented itself. You know, people I knew were around me thinking and certain things and saying certain things. And so I never really had the same freedom I did in Italy.
1: Can I ask you, did you feel judged at home by people? Did Was it a lack of judgment? Was that part of it?
0: I think I, carry, I carried back with me all of that stuff that I, all the baggage that I had acquired while I had been, living at, you know, in my own environment. And so the freedom of of the Italian lifestyle didn't follow me home. Let's just say that.
1: Well, but your desire to stay kind of in the realm that had an international flair certainly continued. And I love the segment that you lucked out and got this job at SRI International. Seems like such a perfect fit for you at the time. But you had that bitch which boss. And you're such a a woman of your own mind. And I just want to hear more about how you maneuvered even working for her. I mean, did she almost fire you? Did you get into it ever? Tell us about that.
0: (laughs) Well, it was always a challenge. Let me say that. I was the youngest of her little group of ladies, her underlings. And all the other girls, of course, just marched right along with her instruction. But I was never quite on board, and she knew it. So she used to reprimand me and try to keep me in line all the time. And, you know, it just, as I said, it just wasn't me to follow her orders.
1: But you had such a strong personality that you just maintained working there, even though she reprimanded you?
0: Well, I was obviously good at what I was doing, and yeah, she knew yeah. that too, even though I wasn't going, a la to her. <laughs> <laughs> Nor would you ever, I think, it seems. <laughs> well, not not very often. <laughs> Anyways, but I I sucked it up enough so that I could stay in the job and benefit from all these wonderful things that that transpired.
1: And and benefit, no pun intended, it seemed to entail. So I'm sorry, but the guy whose last name was Pines, or shall I just say it, Penis, is absolutely hilarious. I mean, you cannot make this shit
0: up, Michelle. <laughs> you no. not. I mean, this is like crazy. It's a real life story. Honestly, Sally, that moment in time was hysterical, hilarious then. And right now, as I recall it, it's just as funny. Okay, recall a little bit for us about that that plant
1: that he gave you because I've never seen a plant like that.
0: <laughs> oh, you mean the anthurium. Yes. It's a beautiful plant and it's exotic. It's a, you know, a tropical plant and it has these fabulous big red glossy leaves. <laughs> and in each leaf there is this stamen that sticks out. Oh my and of course, no. the whole thing was Sergio, Sergio was the assistant to the CEO of a company, the CEO of a man who was the head of a utility company in Milano. And so Sergio was there, a company, his, his fellow, his man, and he took a shine to me. And he was an attractive guy. And he, it was clear in the Italian way that he had, he had something for me, but I wasn't too into him for some reason
1: <laughs> so it wasn't about him being unattractive it was something else it seems
0: no i just i just wasn't that wasn't my thing at that point point. and so when this bouquet arrived and of course i realized that his his name was sergio penis <laughs> oh my god. god you know he didn't realize what the problem
1: was but <laughs> <laughs> or little do we know maybe he did i don't know no
0: obviously not I mean, and then this plant with the penises arrived. and I mean, it was just it was it was just hilarious. what well, What can I say? It's,
1: a, it's it's one of those memories that I'm sure is indelible anyway. So then the story moved forward. And I think it was the guy that you later met, the translator from Japan, I think led you into a discussion that I think is important for us to bring up around when sally met harry and whether or not men and women can ever truly be friends you say that you have been able to have male friendships but but talk a little bit more about
0: that to me well of course we all those of us of a certain age all remember the fabulous movie when sally met harry when harry met sally <laughs> anyway so the famous orgasm scene in that movie was, you know, her faking it. And that subject is a theme in the movie. You know, can men and women be just friends? Or is there always a sexual element? And it's my contention, as a woman, of course, that it's possible to be friends with a man and not have the hots for him. But I kind of think that it's not true from the other side.
1: Well, something else you brought up, though, is that maybe once you've had a sexual relationship, it becomes harder.
0: Isn't that true? Oh, yeah, for sure. If you've been lovers, I don't think there's any way you can just be friends. I think that's not possible. But if you haven't been lovers and you like the person, the man, the guy, but you just don't have a sexual thing or interest in him, I think from a woman's point of view, that's possible.
1: Yeah, I've had men friends, but I've also had friendships with men that grew out of having once been lovers. But it was usually, if it was just a a friendly lover relationship, not a full-blown love relationship, that was harder to maintain friendships for me. But do you think that women
0: can just be friends with men?
1: Yes, I do. It's been my experience that I can.
0: Okay. Well, I bet if we did a survey and asked 100 men, <laughs> 99.5 of them would disagree with us, Sally. <laughs>
1: well, I'm looking forward to, to doing that survey and hearing some of the <laughs> comments that come in from our audience at the end. I mean, it's an interesting subject. I mean, for example, have you asked our producer, TJ, and what did he say?
0: You mean the adorable TJ, our, our studio pod producer? Yeah. I actually did ask him. And what do you think he said? He said, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's got to be a sexual element. <laughs> so uh-huh. he proved uh-huh. my point. Uh
1: huh. Uh huh. Okay. Well, it's an interesting one that seems to go through the ages. So, switching gears a little bit, I love that you applied to this graduate school, a big hot school in Boston called Fletcher. But then, when the possibility of continuing your love affair with Italy took over, that kind of took precedence. So, It revealed to me a little bit about a dichotomy inside you that I want you to speak to if it rings true for you, which is that you were a very ambitious woman achiever type, maybe before your time, but you also wanted to follow your heart. So was that more about your following your mad craze for adventure or was it your heart and love affairs? Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Well, I think the most compelling thing, and again, I did want to go to Fletcher and I've often wondered if that was a mistake that I made, but anyway, to move forward. I think the thing that drew me so much to Italy, on top of all the things I adored about the Italian culture and life in Italy, is that I felt so free to be me. That is a compelling drug. No other time in my life except those times when I lived in Italy, did I feel so liberated. So on top of all the other draws, the the gorgeous men, the love affairs, you know, the love of Italian culture and art and food and whatever else, it was that I could be me. So that drew me, I'm sure. That was the overriding feeling. Mm -hmm. Do you have some regrets
1: at all that you didn't go to Fletcher at that time?
0: Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I <laughs> I think I say later in the book, in the class that I would have attended, Bill Richardson, who later became the governor of New Mexico and was still is a well-known democratic figure, he would have been in my class. So I often fantasized that I would have been Mrs. Richardson. Oh. So... Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of me that thought maybe I blew it on that decision.
1: (laughs) Okay. So then back to Europe, that story about the fire in your apartment, oh my God, that is one of the scariest things I ever heard. It seems like you got out lucky. That could have been horrible.
0: Well, I could have died. That's the bottom line. So, you know, Gail and I were staying with the Doug family, and they didn't have room for both of us to sleep in their apartment. So I volunteered to go up to the 11th floor, and they had these little rooms for the maids. So I was in one of them, and that's where I was writing a letter to Jack, the infamous Jack. And about two or three in the morning, I smelled smoke, and I opened the door, and there was this column of smoke coming up in the elevator shaft, which was also the stairwell. And I panicked. I didn't close the door. I left the door open, which was a huge mistake. But anyway, I somehow got myself up on the roof because I had to get away from the smoke. So I don't know how I got up there. It was just an unconscious reaction. And that's where I'm up there for two hours and the fireman didn't, didn't rescue me. It was awful. Imagine being in the, you know, frigid air in the middle of the night up on a roof in Switzerland with a fire in the building and the firemen ignoring me.
1: No, it's terrifying. And I can't believe you got out, you know, and I know that you hurt yourself and it's horrible how you hurt yourself, but I can't believe that you got out of that situation at all. Just a terrifying piece of the episode. It was.
0: And then, of course, had these fabulous doctors create these contraptions that allowed me to walk basically i know so
1: so inventive
0: yeah it was but also so you, you that part of the story
1: that goes on that really hit me was you know what were you in your early 20s i suppose still and most girls would have gone home to to be home and taking care of their family and not michelle <laughs> was not that was not you and that says so much about your character. And so tell us a little bit about that and then remind me, the newspaper even said something about it. Remind me what that part was about. That's so insane.
0: Yeah, I mean, I literally became headlines in the Geneva newspapers. A crazy American on a burning roof. I mean, imagine. And yes, you're right. Most, I think almost all girls would have gone home to recuperate. It didn't even cross my mind. I was not going to be deterred. So I was lucky to have this family on my father's side from Lausanne who had read the article, of course, not knowing that it was me. And when I contacted them, they were just fantastic. They embraced me. They put, they put Gail and me up in this fabulous old hotel. You know, so that was, that was lovely. But I, I didn't even think about going home. Forget it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, this is going back in time a little bit to an earlier part of the episode. Is that okay with you? Sure. Okay. Tell me a little bit about when you first met handsome, swoony, smiling Jack. You say that he had heard about you and wanted to check you out. What do you think he heard about you exactly and what was it like when you first saw him?
0: Well, he again, he was one of those men who loves women and he was a part of the department, the international department. His role was to go out on these assignments all over the globe and stay for a while and work with foreign companies. And it turns out, I found out later, that he had a woman in every port. But (laughs) he, he had heard that I was the new girl in the secretariat. So when he got back from Australia, he wanted to come check me out. See, see what the story was, and he liked what he saw. So he started to date me. And
1: describe that first time you saw him. Was what was it about him that 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 swooned you?
0: Well, I was sitting at my desk, work, doing my work, and he appeared in a doorway that I could see from my desk. And he stood there, and he's very handsome and sexy. And he introduced himself to me. And it became quite clear that that was his purpose in standing in the doorway, was to (laughs) find out what he could about the new girl on the block. And one thing led to another. So you
1: did have a story with Jack, and we're going to come back to Jack later, simply because you did go back to Europe and then... There's more to the Jack story that I'm going to ask you about in a moment. But first, when you're back in Rome and you got temporary work because you needed money and you actually got a job at De Laurentiis, is that real? That's crazy.
0: Yeah, that was my first assignment, if you can believe it. And imagine, Sally, I had those things on my feet. So <laughs> During I, the job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was still, you know, with those crazy gizmos on my legs. And so my first assignment was to this Dino De La Renta's films. And I was working for the managing director, actually, of the international division. And that first job of trying to type a 20-page <laughs> movie contract, I'll never forget it. It was Insane. Insane. Oh my God. I had a similar
1: situation in Paris when I was young. I'll have to tell you sometime that I I had, very embarrassing because my French was good as spoken French, but my writing was terrible. (laughs) What we did as young people, we just thought we could conquer anything. (laughs) So then the other thing that cracked me up was when you stayed in the pension that was owned by a former prostitute who actually wanted to rent out rooms to young women, from what you said, who were looking for love. But she wouldn't even tell you when there were gentlemen showing an interest. What a contradiction. That's hilarious. Oh, it
0: was infuriating. Infuriating. (laughs) I mean, honest to God. So, yeah, I think it was because it wasn't so much that she was looking out for her tenants. It was because she was maintaining her reputation and didn't want people to think she was Still a putana, still a right. prostitute.
1: Then how did you know that she had once been a prostitute? Well, she told us all.
0: Ah, of course. <laughs> she must have had maybe 20 foreign girls staying in her rooms. And she owned this building off of Via Veneto. I mean, it was very expensive real estate. So I can only conjecture, you know, what kind of a putana she was. <laughs>
1: It's so insane. And then still with your bad feet, is this real that you actually went to the Vatican on Easter with your
0: with your bad feet? Or was that after? Was that right after? Yeah, I had just gotten the things off my feet. I had the Swiss doctors told me I'd have to have films taken. I did that after two months and I sent them up to Switzerland. The word came back that my heels were fine. So it was a few days before Easter that that happened. So I, for the you know, I was took the things off, but I could not walk very fast because my muscles were weak,
1: and that image of you going up and down the stairs in that hotel on your bomb, I'm sorry, another filmic <laughs> image <It's like,
0: laughs> yep. And there were lots of stairs, let me tell you. <laughs>
1: Anyway, I'm also proud of you for not taking, you know, the doctor's words to heart. They said you'd never play tennis again and you just decided not to believe it, and you were
0: right. That's right. I'm sorta stubborn, you know. I'm sort of stubborn. Well, that's stubborn in a good way, though. Yeah.
1: So then let's go back to to Jack because that is where the episode comes to a natural ending. And it it sounds like it was a, a terribly upsetting moment when you write after you had this very romantic rendezvous with him you get that horrid letter from his live-in lover and if you can just tell us a little bit more because it sounds like you knew or you you kind of sensed he might be rascally in some way but but this seemed like it came to you as an utter shock so can you talk to us a little bit
0: about that trauma i was absolutely traumatized literally i received this letter It wasn't from him. It was from the woman he lived with. And I couldn't believe it. What kind of a charade was this? That he would continue to seek me out, go all the way, you know, to Belgium to meet me while he's shacked up with some woman from Sydney. What the hell was that about? And to get the news from her, basically saying, back off, bitch. And I was beside myself. I couldn't believe how I'd been betrayed and also how I had been so blinded to this man's character. You know, it's just not a good feeling to to have that happen. And I was alone in Rome, basically, at that point. Gail had met her later, fu- or her future husband by that time, and I was on my own. And I couldn't believe it. And then I couldn't Get him to answer the phone to respond to me.
1: Okay, so you did reach out. I wasn't sure if you had reached out or not.
0: Well, no, I tried. And going to and making a foreign telephone call in those days was a major production. You had to go to the post office, you had to get a a ticket to get into a booth. You had to, it was just traumatic. And I, and he'd never answer the phone. So here I was. I just had to suck it up, realize I had made a mistake, I'd been taken advantage of and move on. So at the end of
1: the episode, if I'm remembering correctly, you definitely were traumatized. Clearly, it was a very hurtful situation for you. And I believe you said something like learning to discern genuine interests from a good man versus that of a rogue or a serial womanizer wasn't something that you were well-trained at then. So... So tell us a little bit about that and how you've landed looking back at that situation.
0: Well, it was probably the first time that kind of thing had happened to me. And it was, it was shocking. It was, it just completely unraveled me. And yet I realized I had to pick up the pieces and move ahead. But what I realized is I hadn't completely learned the lesson, you know, it, happen a time or two again in the future. So, As we will hear, right? Yeah, you'll have to stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by Studio Pod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com.